following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Previously, we discussed the multidimensionality of dreams. We spoke about where we dream. But now we're going to speak about why. In this lecture today, we're going to elaborate on our psychological constitution who we are fundamentally by understanding our psychological makeup. We can understand the source and originator of dreams. This is because we seek to awaken. We want to achieve religion religare, reunion. But that can only be accomplished with an awakened consciousness. No longer dreaming. No longer fantasizing. By understanding why we dream, we can cease dreaming and learn to awaken consciousness within the internal worlds. This question is very profound. Science has not yet been able to explain why we dream. While different psychologists, scientists have examined why we dream and offered particular insights from different perspectives, the truth is that none of them are complete in themselves. But in this lecture, we're going to purvey some of those understandings in relation to Gnostic science. The Greek word gnosis means knowledge from experience. It is what we have verified within ourselves. 
it's useful to study previous insights into dreams. In this image, we have Sigmund Freud on the left and Carl Jung on the right. Eminent psychologists who provided some teachings that are valuable to provide context for today. Swami Shivananda, a great meditator, dream yogi, Gnostic master, explains in his book, The Philosophy of Dreams, a summary of the works of these two psychologists. In relation to why we dream, Shivananda said the following, according to Freud, all dreams, without any exception, are wish fulfillment. The wishes are actually of a moral nature. They are revolting to the moral self, which exercises a control on their appearance. In Freudian psychology, he spoke about the id, instinctual animal desire, which seeks gratification through dreams. Those tendencies or impulses that are not satisfied within one's daily waking state find their expression within the dream world. Oftentimes, these desires are contrary to our moral sense of identity, the self, which Freud calls ego, a part of us that censors that which is acceptable within society or reprehensible. He referred to the superego as the conscience or ideals of a society that in turn help to regulate the self. In dreams, he states that desires that are not satisfied find their expression. Oftentimes, these dreams are very difficult to interpret due to the symbolic expression or nature of dreams. Swami Shivananda continues, Hence, to evade this moral censor, the wishes appear in disguised forms. The dream mechanism is very intricate. Very few dreams present the wishes as they really are. Dreams are partial gratification of the wishes. And according to Freud, they, are op they operate as a form of release. Those frustrated desires find their fulfillment. The energy is, according to psychoanalysis, alleviated. They relieve the mental tension, Shivananda continues, and thus enables us to enjoy repose. They are safety valves to strong impulsions. Dreams do not disturb sleep, but rather protect it. Because, according to Freud, dreams find their expression and release. This allows for the process of dreaming and sleep to occur. Lastly, the rationality 
and the immorality of dreams make the morality and rationality of our waking life possible. Freud stated this or taught this because he believed our animal instincts and desires are a part of us. And notice as we go a little bit deeper than that. The irrationality of dreams occur in order to allow for our rational existence to be. This is stated because contrary to gnosis, many think that desire is something that cannot be eliminated or transformed. They believe it is something that cannot be removed. But instead, in Gnosis, it is something we seek to transform. Carl Jung was a bit different, actually very different. His primary focus on dreams, why we dream, is to study the spirituality of those states. Freud was contrary. He thought all dreams are merely desire. And while these two paragons of knowledge offer valuable insight into the spectrum of dreams, in Gnosis we study both in order to understand the range that we spoke about previously the spectrum of consciousness. Swami Shivananda states the following. The above statement of Freud shows that we know our animal self in dream. But he does not say anything about the spiritual life being expressed in dream. This, it seems, has been done by Jung. Carl Jung was very well known for studying the symbols of dreams, the archetypical language of mystical consciousness. Those type of experiences in our studies we call visions. They are the direct apprehension of divine truth communicated through the allegory, the symbolism of dreams. However, this does not negate the fact that many of our dreams right now are of a animal nature constituted by desire, which we're going to elaborate later on. For Freud, he was very interested in why we dream from a biological perspective. But also to understand the causes. According to Jung, a dream is not causally determined as was supposed by Freud, but it is teleologically determined relating to the explanation of phenomena in terms of purpose, end, or goal, rather than the function of its cause. Since for Freud, dreams are wish fulfillment, the cause is, of, is desire. But for Jung, he looked at the consequences of dreams as a means of spiritual instruction. Instruction from divine, the divine that teaches through that state. 
So teleology is more concerned with the impact of dreams, not their cause. This is why Shivananda explained the repressed wishes alone do not explain all our dreams. A dream presents a demand to our waking consciousness. If rightly interpreted, it shows the way to be at peace with ourselves. The dreams of the neurotics not only reveal the repressed contents, but they also suggest remedies for the cure. We can get messages in dreams that teach us how to be healed of a problem, of a sickness, of a state of suffering, of a situation. A series of dreams, as Shivananda states, sometimes occur to a patient which reveal a way to the cure. We study both perspectives and offer a synthesis. Dreams are not only focused on desire, but can be spiritual. What, what it depends on is our psychological state, which has a range of expression, modalities of being. As you see in this image of an island, we have a direct representation of our psychology. We see only on the surface of things in our physical life. But if we happen to dream, we start to see inner realities, mostly of a disturbing nature. Oftentimes dreams are incoherent, wild, ecstatic, terrifying. They have a logic of their own, but when we wake, we realize their ephemerality and oftentimes we brush it aside. But these dreams show us something important in ourselves. These type of dreams show that we have no control of our real psychology, of the depths of why we behave in life. The irrationality of dreams shows us that there are parts of us that we don't know that we don't control, that we don't understand. The purpose of Gnosis is to understand why we dream. The cause, the origins. Dreams in themselves reflect who we are. And in reality, what we see on the surface of things has its roots in deep psychological causes, oftentimes trauma, states of suffering. The dreams we experience at night usually are a reflection of our daily life. We may have a conflict at work. Someone gets a promotion above us. The job we longed for. And even though we may not admit it to ourselves, we feel envy jealousy, maybe even rage. We go to bed, we dream of that situation, except without any social inhibitions or mores, 
We curse. We commit violence. We express our rage in the dream. These dreams reflect really what is going on in us. So we can't dismiss them as something unreal because they are real. They have a reality. They show us qualities of ourselves that we need to understand. Because in Gnosis, we study our dreams because we want to understand these root causes of pain to eliminate them so that we stop dreaming. Instead, we have happiness and altruism for our coworker. We give them praise for the work that they have put forward. And not only physically changing our behaviors, but when we dream, or better said, we go to bed at night, we learn to see the reality of things without being hypnotized by our own delusions. We think we are an island, but in reality, we are a shark, a dinosaur, a monster. Because these negative emotions truly are not beneficial to humanity. These elements make us dream, keep us confused, keep us hypnotized. This is why Swami Shivananda wrote in the Philosophy of Dreams, the waking and dreaming states do not exist independently side by side as real units. Dreams are nothing but a reflection of our waking experience in a new form. It's by understanding this fact that we can learn to awaken. That small bandwidth that perceives the terrain of this island can learn to go into the depths. By learning and understanding and removing the obstacles of our consciousness, by ending dreams, by knowing why we dream, we awaken the full spectrum of who we are. Right now, in our current state, we have a statistic that is often very disturbing for people. We are 3% conscious and 97% unconscious. If you don't believe me, we can examine the last time we went to sleep at night. How much do we remember? What did we dream, if, if at all? Or perhaps earlier in our childhood, we had a vision in which we knew we were dreaming, we were awake. That is an expression of our potential, the possibilities of being. We want to awaken consciousness, make that unconscious part of us conscious. This is why Salman Vyar stated in his book, Hell, the Devil, and Karma, any direct experience, such as a vision, an astral experience is to be found associated with percentages of awakened consciousness. Normally, people only possess 3% awakened consciousness and 97% subconsciousness or sleepy consciousness. Unquestionably, the first sparks of direct experience begin when one reaches 4 or 5% awakened consciousness. Now, let us distinguish between sparks and total plenitude which are different. For example, someone who possesses 10% of awakened consciousness 
will have a greater percentage of lucidity than those who possess 4 or 5%. With the techniques in this course, the vibrancy of our dreaming state becomes augmented. We see more. We experience more. We see greater color, depth, and lucidity than even physically being awake. But that can only come about when we transform ourselves. This is why in our studies, we study our psychology. In this image, we see an eye looking out at a person, a young woman. And beyond her is a mask. This image represents these three qualities of what we are fundamentally. Essence, ego, personality. The essence is our consciousness. It is our innate reality. It is the ability to perceive like this eye. That consciousness can be unconditioned and awake, unimpeded by any obscuring factors like hatred, fear, vanity, pride, lust, envy. Or it can be conditioned by those things, by those states that I just mentioned, which is the self, ego. The ego, the self, our identity, what we grasp at as an essential state of who we are, whether it be attachments, fears, preoccupations, anxieties, worries, despair, morbidity, passion. These all constitute a sense of self, an I, as in me, myself, identity. But in truth, these elements obscure our real vision. They don't allow us to see reality as it is, whether we are physically awake or whether we are dreaming, unconscious, asleep. We also have personality, which we'll dive into. It is a mask. It is the interface we use, our language, our face, our name, our race, our culture, our upbringing, our education, our inheritance, biologically and psychologically. These help us to interact with the world, but they are in turn an interface that we use to operate and live. These are layers and layers of our psychology. Some of them are more dense, some are more rarefied. My consciousness is our real identity, but right now it is asleep. This image, really, the eye should be closed because we don't see internally. That's because we have too much attachment to an, the ego, the self, and also our personality, our terrestrial identity, which we're going to elaborate upon. The essence is our intrinsic reality, our true nature. It is the consciousness, what religions have called soul. It is the beauty of an innocent child. When we are young, we see life with innocence, intense awareness, clarity, radiance, 
happiness and love. When we look at a child, we see the bliss of Eden, paradise, untainted by any desire, any law of a societal nature, any fault, any defect. This is why Jesus in the gospel stated, become ye as little children if you wish to enter the kingdom of heaven. A child symbolically represents the soul. If you dream about a child, what happens to that child, that is showing you yourself, your real nature. The essence, if you look at some of the dictionary definitions, refers to the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something, especially something abstract that determines its character. We use the term essence because it is that part of us that is indispensable. You cannot eliminate it. It is the fundamental core of your very existence. It allows you to live, perceive, to think, to understand, to feel, and to sense, to experience. However, this child has grown up due to the world, the tragedies of life, the sufferings of existence. And rather than see life with an alert, conscious attention, spontaneous awareness, intuition and joy, this consciousness has lost its course. The essence in itself, that which is indispensable to our true nature, has become clouded, obscured, conditioned. In its free state, it is what allows us to have astral projections, mystical experiences, visions, traveling through other dimensions. It allows us to see thought, to understand the inner causes of trauma or other people's traumas, inner vision. If you dream of butterfly wings or a butterfly that relates to the birth of the soul, that is becoming aware of itself. But as I said, that self, or better said, that essence that does not have any sense of identity of me, my desires, what I want, is a spontaneous awareness that is not conditioned. However, the essence as it develops within a child between the years of one and seven starts to acclimate to the world, to the parents, through experiences, through education, through inheritance. And that essence, which was once free and joyful, starts to express and be trapped within many elements 
many faults. And it loses its character in the sense that water, when put into a dirty jug, is contaminated. That is why we study the ego, those obscurations, conditions, defects, faults, vices, errors, contaminants, afflictions, or precisely our desires. The term ego in Latin means I, even in Greek has the same meaning. It is the self that which thinks, feels, or acts. In this image, we see St. Anthony surrounded by demons, which in mythology represents Christian dispensation, his own self, or better said, his own selves. Each self is conglomerated with an ego. In contemporary psychology, we like to think that we are one self, but in reality, we are many. And it's evidenced by our waking states, but also our dreams. If you seriously examine your dreams and your daily life, you will find that there is no consistency within different activities. In one moment, we feel angry at our partner. And the next, we feel jealousy, fear, pride, attachment. We love someone one day, we hate them the next. We want to get something to eat, then we change our mind. Or better said, our mind changes us. Then we decide we want to get exercise. Even within a single traumatic event, we reflect a multiplicity of factors, elements, contaminants, pride, fear, anger, lust, envy, jealousy, greed. If you want to use seven deadly sins or Buddhist terms to refer to the same thing, this reflects what we are. It is the self that thinks, feels, or acts. But why does the ego exist is the question. The ego exists because we created it. Our consciousness, the essence, which had a choice to fulfill a superior law of divinity or to act selfishly, chose the opposite. And therefore, the ego has a lot of power in us. This is the 97% subconsciousness that we have, is conditioned self, ego. Because when something bad happens to us, we just react. These things happen. We don't control, usually, our responses to life. Often we're very afflicted, mechanically. We don't really think about our choices or deliberate whether to act on anger or not. In fact, our culture today feeds that sentiment, is miseducated. This ego is really egos, selves. 
But the only reason they have power is because they have bottled up our consciousness in the same way that the genie of Aladdin's lamp is trapped. But if you break the bottle, you free the genie. And this is where dream yoga becomes very interesting. By liberating the consciousness that is trapped in these elements, by understanding ourselves, understanding pride with its ambitions, its anger, its resentment, or jealousy, whatever it may be, we learn to understand our dreams, to understand ourselves. The ego makes us dream. All those thoughts, daydreams, worries, anxieties, fears, preoccupations, those are projections of the ego churning and lost in a reverie of thought. It's a state of dreaming. If you understand the source of those dreams, which comes from this sense of self, you can remove the ego and awaken the essence. Something we'll talk about and have talked about in our courses. It's also important to understand that we are not only essence and ego, we are personality or have a personality. The personality is a mask, literally from the Latin persona, mask, character. It is our cultural interface. It is our face, our language, our race, our culture, our ideologies, our habits, our tastes. This mask is a buffer between the internal and the external worlds. This mask is time. It is born in time and it dies in time. When we die, the personality goes to the grave as well. And it is the personality that allows the ego to integrate within a child. When you look at a child between one and four years of age, they're innocent. But as they develop personality, learning to adopt language, their culture, they start to incorporate many elements which are egotistical. And therefore, they become angry, temperamental, enraged. I'm sure all, all parents are pretty familiar with that. But the personality in itself is something necessary. It is necessary to develop a personality between the ages of one and seven and gradually through time to get an education, a career, a vocation, in order to subsist in this world. But the question is, who is using the personality? The personality is an instrument we develop in each lifetime whenever we incorporate into this world. Some people have called that reincarnation. We call it return because we don't choose to be here. If we remembered from experiences, then perhaps there's something different. But we tend to enter a new life after death repeatedly without any awareness or memory. We develop a personality each time we return into a new existence. Therefore, this is why personality is time. It's appropriate to a given social context. If you take a Roman soldier from the ancient era, and put him in Chicago, his personality would not 
align with the world. No one would understand him, nor neither would he understand his environment. That is why personality is time. It's malleable. It's energetic. It relates to the context in which we develop language, understanding, identity, culture. Each mask we wear in each lifetime is like an instrument that can play music. Every personality is a different instrument. Perhaps in one era, it's like a guitar. In another lifetime, we develop another personality, like a piano. You can play the same notes, the same music, the same psychological content, ego or essence, but it gets expressed in a different way every time we return to a new life. This is why the word persona can relate to personality, to sound through. Ancient Greek, prosopon, face, appearance, mask, used in ancient theater to denote a character or more generally a social role. The personality determines how we express what we are. But our psychological contents remain the same. The ego returns and reincorporates again and again. And it is the ego which dreams, makes us asleep, makes the essence unconscious. But the personality, people worship it in this era, identify with it, dream about it, that this is my race, my language, my culture, ignoring that in other lifetimes we were in other races and times and religions. We don't tend to remember that, but many people build a dream world about their race and their language and their culture. These things are necessary and beautiful in life, but they're not the totality of what we are. Shakespeare related some truths about this in his play, As You Like It, talking about the personality. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. We play many parts within time. Every time we return, we put on a new mask. We play the same dramas. The mask in ancient Greek culture was a representation of personality. The interface, the code by which we express what we are. But unfortunately for many people, this is what we are attached to. If we are attached to our personality or the ego, then we dream. What is a dream? We explain examples. You're driving your car, you're thinking of something else. You're washing the dishes, reminiscing about a problem you had or a trauma. We're taking the bus, we're remembering a struggle or conflict we had at work and we miss our stop. We're preoccupied with our thoughts, our emotions and our impulses to act, not really questioning their source. We therefore become identified. We feel identification whenever we attach our consciousness to a sense of self in response to whatever impressions come into us in life. When we feel a center in which 
It may be pride, resentment, anger, jealousy. We give our energy to that self. We become stuck in that quality. The type of work we are talking about in these studies is to awaken the consciousness, to observe this process in us. We call it self-observation, like in this image. You see a woman looking at a mirror. Behind her, you don't see anybody. But in the image of the mirror, she sees a man. We chose this image because it represents self-observation very well. It's a psychological sense. It's not literally you're going to see physically your desires or your mind. It's a psychological sense. We all know that we feel, think, have impulses, emotions. Can you pinpoint it? Do you know where it is? Where it's coming from? What provoked your reactions? We may say we feel thought or think thought in our brain. Doesn't mean that the brain originates thought. It's a vehicle that allows our soul to act or our ego to act. Likewise, we may feel a strong emotion. We point towards our heart. But emotion is not originated in the heart. It's psychological. It's from a different dimension. We are multidimensional beings. Thoughts, feelings, and impulses, the latter being related to the body, the drive to act, don't originate from the physical body. When you drive a car, you don't say, this car is me. Although this is exactly what everybody does. I have a Volvo or you have a Mercedes. Let's get into an argument. Judgments, right? It's funny, but it's really sad. People put too much attention. They identify even with the body. They think this is what I am, personality. They have many dreams about it, many ideas, many philosophies. All of it's like a ghost. It's ephemeral. It doesn't last. Or emotions. They come and go, but we invest so much energy into it. Likewise, our thoughts, which wander from thing to thing, flighty. They have a reality in us. In fact, we tend to think of them as more real than our physical existence. You don't sense that with your physical senses. It's psychological. It's from other planes of being, worlds of being. But in order to know this process, we have to observe ourselves. We have to look in the mirror, observe ourselves psychologically, moment by moment. People have called this mindfulness which means to observe your psychology in every instant, all day, so that you do that at night. And instead of dreaming, going with the flow of existence, you awaken consciousness. But the problem because, becomes, rather than looking at the mirror, reflecting on our own states, we tend to give our energy and time, our emotions, or better said, our consciousness, to the ego, 
We become fascinated with life. We see a woman whose eye is covered by a moon. The eye is the consciousness, symbolically speaking. It is the ability to perceive, to see it in the mirror clearly, reflecting on who we are. But the moon is a symbol within religions and even in the dream world about our ego, our desires. The moon is a symbol of desire and ego because the moon is mechanical. It doesn't have a life of its own. In fact, it's like a vampire. As a satellite, it rotates around the earth. It affects many mechanical processes in nature, whether it be menstruation, reproduction, the tides of the earth, even crime rates. It's because the influence of the moon has a direct impact on life on earth. That is a symbol of our ego. Our ego and our desires just happen to us. They're mechanical. You go through a problem at work, someone insults us, we feel anger. We don't choose to be angry, it just happens. And then you're in the situation. Whether to give your thoughts and desires what they want, to express them, to give them your energy, or to observe them, to not act on those impulses. Those thoughts and worries and daydreams and anxieties and plans are all dreams. That is why we dream. Something happens, we identify with it. We have a sense of self that comes up. We become fascinated with the problem, fascinated with our own psychological reactions. We get sucked into the moon. We become lunar, lunatics. Really, it's absurd to give energy to anger and lust and pride when all it does is create suffering. But this is what we do all the time. And as we give our energy to ourselves, our ego, our egos, we fall asleep. We're not even aware of what's happening. You ever watch a crowd become violent? Ever watch a lynching or some kind of violent experience? Genocide, crime, many things. People enter a crowd, they become a mob, they're fascinated. They lose their identity. They just go along with the flow. People who would never have done anything unethical become unethical in an instant because we're asleep. We're unconscious. So we need to observe ourselves, reflect on what is going on inside of us so that we don't do things we regret and therefore we, don't, we no longer dream. When we study dreams, we also study the nature of the astral dimension. The astral world is a world of imagination. It's a world of perception with a lot of images, clarity, color, dynamism. Range, depths. The capacity that allows us to perceive dreams with greater intensity or experience 
has to do with the quality of our consciousness. The consciousness can either be free or conditioned, awakened as essence or conditioned with an ego. So when we enter the astral dimension, depending on our state of being, that dimension reflects back to us what is inside. It is like a lake that reflects either the heavens above or the chaos and churning of a storm, which is our own mind. This quality of perception, the ability to perceive non-physical imagery, whether in meditation or in dreams, is known as imagination. Imagination is a natural faculty of the consciousness. We all have it. If I tell you to imagine an elephant, you can see it, right? just comes to you. Or remember what you had for breakfast this morning. It's not a physical image, but it's there. That's imagination. That very same faculty, when it's trained and developed intentionally, allows us to open the door to the superior worlds. It allows us to see what's actually there. But unfortunately for most of us, because throughout the day we identify too much with negative emotion, the water's churning and chaotic and disorganized. Therefore, you can't reflect anything profoundly in it. But when you reach equanimity through meditation, serenity of mind, acting ethically and self-observing throughout the day, the waters of the mind calm, and then you can start to perceive images. Dreams are like that. When you're at perfect peace and calm, you see things. That's imagination. We have exercises that help to develop imagination. And we'll talk about them in this course. The difference between inferior perceptions and superior perceptions has to do with our quality of mind. We call the mind in our studies the ego. That's predominantly what we are, what we think, feel, and act. Our mind right now tends to be very active, agitated, running around, thinking many things, feeling many things. When the mind does that, within the dream state, it projects images because the mind is active. Therefore, when, usually when we dream and why we dream is because we're seeing the contents of our own mind playing out. It doesn't have a real objective existence. In the same way that you look at a projector screen and images being presented on it, the screen is the screen. That's the astral dimension. But because we're projecting images from our own mind, it manifests as a negative type of imagination into our experience. And that is typically what we see. If you awaken your consciousness in the astral world and see people walking around the streets doing whatever, you see that they're hypnotized by their own mind. They're dreaming. They're like in a mirage. They're delusional. It's like being a crazy person, hallucinating. You don't see the reality. You don't see what's there. The projector needs to be turned off. The mind cannot be active. Instead, it must become receptive. When the mind is receptive, the lake calms, then the images from the superior worlds emerge. Whether we're meditating or entering the dream state willingly, consciously. 
The consciousness needs to be active. When the consciousness is active, the mind is calm, the personality is at rest, the mind is still, then reality comes. This is why Samal and Vior in his book, Sexology, The Basis of Endocrinology and Criminology, stated, for the wise to imagine is to see. Imagination is the capacity to directly perceive our inner reality. And the astral dimension is what allows us to see through the world of images, our own desires, or divine archetypes, divine experiences. Swami Shivananda explained in Philosophy of Dreams how psychoanalytical theory is deficient, primarily because it ignores what the astral dimension is like. It's even mere existence. Psychoanalysts say that desires stimulate or help the dream creation where they do not know what supplies the material out of which they are made, what turns the desires into actual expression, enabling the dreamer to see his own suppressed desires materialize and appearing to him as real. It's because the astral world is the mirror. It is the imaginary world. We see what we are there. We've touched on this, but I'd like to lay out for you the difference between positive and negative imagination. Positive imagination is related to the essence, the soul. It is the qualities of our consciousness, the powers of the consciousness. Negative imagination is desire. It is the perceptions of an ego. To understand why we dream and how to cease dreaming, we examine the different ways in which we perceive existence. In the beginning, we perceive through a lens darkly, says Shakespeare. When you are afflicted with anger, you see through anger. We don't rationalize or deliberate, but we just see the situation in accordance with that condition. And then we fantasize or daydream. That person should have said that to me. I deserve better. We respond or react judgmentally. That's a negative quality of imagination. It's not positive. It's called fantasy. The consciousness can have insight into problems. It doesn't wander off into thought or get distracted or fantasize about who we are, what we should have received, or like in the example I gave about seeing a coworker become promoted, we should have deserved that promotion, etc. Those are fantasies. Those are illusions. They waste energy. In those moments, we're dreaming through the ego. But also, we study how the consciousness works. How does the consciousness perceive? The essence needs to learn to examine the ego. We have to activate through self-observation what is going on inside of us. That's vipassana in Buddhist meditation philosophy. Special insight. It's when you see the ego in action and you don't give it what it wants. You understand where it comes from, why it thinks the way it does, where it was created, how it came to be, what it feeds on. 
We know the root of a problem. And therefore, the mind is calm. Perfect serenity. Stillness. The opposite of Vipassana, of special insight, is spacing out, which we all know. Perhaps we experienced a lot of that at our job. Mind wanders. We're not in the meeting thinking about what's going on. We just want to get to our next activity or think the meeting was a waste of time. Some people think meditation is like that, just letting the mind do whatever it wants. But that's negative. That's a negative imagination. Some people have called this type of perspective or perception clairvoyance. It's a French term meaning clear vision. It originally was given by a group of French esotericists who wanted to create a technical flavor to their study so that people would leave them alone or think that this faculty is only something given to the special, but it's not. Clear vision, clairvoyance, is imagination. We all have it. It's a natural part of who we are. But unfortunately, it's not developed. When you really develop clear vision in yourself, you see your egos. You can even see the egos of other people. The way thoughts travel. We awaken consciousness within the superior worlds. But unfortunately for us, we tend to daydream, get the mind wanders, losing a state of awareness, which is again another faculty of imagination where you have a spatial perception of the things around you and how you relate to them, of yourself and of the impressions of life. Unconscious dreaming, we all know of. Dreams happen, we have no control. We go through the experience without even remembering who we are or what we're doing. We wake up, realize it was a dream. Spiritual visions are positive imagination. It relates to the translucence of the soul to see clearly. These type of visions and experiences are very divine. And they cannot be limited or interpreted with any sense of self. Some people get confused about consciousness. How is it our true identity and yet it has no self, no I? The truth is that you can only understand that through experience. To perceive without the mind interpreting, labeling, interpreting. Visualization is a positive quality of imagination. The ability to take an image, project it within your mind, to see it for what it is with a lot of clarity and depth. That's something that helps us to experience dreams consciously. The opposite is hallucinations, nightmares, and even hypnosis. Hallucinations for people who may suffer from a mental illness, they're seeing things. We say they're not real, but in fact, they have a reality within the mind of the person. That's negative imagination. Nightmares we've all had, probably. We're, we're being chased by a monster or a beast. We have no control of what we're doing. Those are negative. And lastly, hypnosis. Some people have attempted treatment to understand a trauma within themselves but we don't emphasize or recommend it, primarily because hypnosis puts you to sleep psychologically. The consciousness is asleep and inactive, and therefore the person, the hypnotist, controls the mind of the person. 
maybe even implant some thoughts into that person. That's negative. Because we want to awaken the consciousness so that we can understand for ourselves perhaps our own traumas and experiences. So we've talked previously about the tree of life. It's a map of consciousness from the superior to the inferior. These spheres represent qualities of being from those divine above, the most material and dense below. Some religions have called it heavens. And beneath the physicality of our body, the earth, our material plane, we have the hell realms, which is our ego. In the positive spectrum of perception, we have supraconscious divine states and also conscious perceptions, which we're going to elaborate upon. The negative states belong to the subconsciousness, the unconsciousness, and the infra-consciousness. Visions belong to the positive states of imagination, but dreams are found within the negative, the inferior worlds. Let's talk about these in detail to understand why we dream. Subconsciousness relates to our memories, past experiences, and mental formations in the personality. Perhaps growing up as a child, we were bitten by a dog. We may not even remember the experience because we were too young, but whenever we encounter a dog in our life, we feel panic. We're terrified. Even if it's an innocent dog or a cute one, we feel terror because there's something in our subconsciousness which has traumatized us. It's a fear and an impression within our psyche that has not been understood or transformed because the intensity of the impression of that experience was so deep and because the consciousness was not active, that impression became a fear and a trauma, a condition or a bottle that traps the soul within a state of suffering. There are many other types of subconscious desires, subconscious states. They all have to do usually with memory, things that we may not even remember on the surface but which have an existence that is just beneath the range of our perception. Sub means beneath, below the surface of the waters, so to speak. If you think back to that image of the island in the previous slides, the subconsciousness is like being in a cave. You're in the dark. And oftentimes our subconscious perceptions relate to our personality. These are things that often are developed within our lifetime that relate to personality, usually the initial stages of our development. With our personality, what's important to understand is that personality relates to our inheritance, whether biologically or psychologically. People who grow up in a house of alcoholics tend to do so because they have an ego of alcoholism in them that attracted them to that situation. It's a form of cause and effect we call karma. And growing up in such a house, one may have a lot of pain and suffering, a lot of trauma, a lot of difficulties. And may repeat behaviors throughout life that coincide with 
those faults. Not only do we have our inheritance, we also have our education, how we're raised, affects our personality and how we dream. The way that we're raised shapes in the first seven years of life the trajectory of everything. Therefore, for parents, it's very important to learn to cultivate beautiful values for the soul of their child so that they can have a strong ethical discipline and a personality that will allow them to function effectively in life. And then circumstances, what happens all throughout the progression of their experience could be any event in life after the personality has already been formed, but is, as I said, malleable, is affected and adapts to different situations. The personality is not a stable, static entity. In fact, if you get a new job, you examine the culture of your coworkers, you see that there's a culture there. And therefore, you learn to adapt with your personality to fit in. It relates to imitation, especially. We dream a lot because we imitate or try to imitate others to fit in. We worry, I need to be like my boss or my coworkers or the people I work for, the clients I serve. Relate to the subconsciousness, subconscious tendencies that we don't really question. We just go along with it. We also have the unconsciousness, unconscious perceptions, unconscious imagination. This is formed through frustrated desire. Strong emotions that are not transformed. Usually of anger and lust. Unconsciousness or unconscious behaviors relate to desires that are not satisfied. And therefore, they become enraged or violent. Perhaps we may even Think of an example, whether in oneself or someone we know. Perhaps their partner was talking with someone else and we feel jealousy. We feel anger. We perceive the situation as something of adultery, even though the partner is innocent. Later that night, we go to dream. We see the scene of our partner committing adultery. That is unconscious imagination. A desire of anger and jealousy that was so intense that felt betrayed and projected its own illusions into the screen of the astral world. And there are many people who take their dreams at face value. They think that such dreams and perceptions are objective because they're seeing it. And that's wrong. It's dangerous. There are a lot of people who've had these types of experiences but could not discern or discriminate what, what it was and therefore have committed crimes. The mentality of cr uh, criminals is also unconscious. 100% of homicides are unconscious behaviors. The desire in life that I deserve what others have because the world has not given it to me. Therefore, I'm going to take what I want. That's anger. It's frustrated, frustrated sentiment or lust. Lust dreams all the time. The perfect partner. This partner is going to be in a certain way 
a certain appearance, a certain personality, and then getting into multiple relationships again and again, and always leaving those relationships because the lust is never satisfied. The person does not meet the ideal. Doesn't fit in with the fantasy and never will. That's unconscious imagination. It's dreaming. But there are also even more hidden depths. The infraconsciousness is the most intense of the three inferior kinds of imagination. Infra, meaning inferior, relates to inferno, the hell realms. These are nightmares. Anybody who's had night terrors, experiences of falling asleep and being attacked by monsters, by demons, by black magicians, this is an infraconscious imagination. These are hidden animal desires, perversity, traumas, and negative qualities of the lowest psyche. These nightmares in themselves are really the reflect of the lowest aspect of ourselves. Those monsters and beasts are really our own mind. They have a reality because they dwell within the infernal regions of experience. Our ego belongs to the subconsciousness, the unconsciousness, and the infraconsciousness. And we dream because those elements surge to the surface and find their expression within us when we're asleep and usually off our guard. Nightmares are not illusory. They're showing us a reality in ourselves. And this is why every mythology or religion always depicted the heroes going down into the abyss to fight the great monster, the dragon, the minotaur, the medusa, the gorgons. There's a symbol of how we go into our own subconscious, unconscious, and infraconscious depths to pinpoint the source of why we dream, why we're so hypnotized in life. And by confronting it with an awakened consciousness, we slay the dragon. We free Andromeda, like in the opening slide of this presentation. I don't know if it's Perseus or Theseus who saves Andromeda from a monster, from the Kraken. But that's a symbol of the same process. Going into the depths, slaying the ego so that we no longer dream. And therefore we develop conscious imagination. This is the perception of things as they are. When there is no I present, no ego, no self, when you're awake as an essence and seeing without an interpreter, without a condition, you are experiencing conscious imagination. Seeing an ego in yourself is precisely conscious imagination where you don't have to think or presuppose, theorize or debate. You see it directly as a clear, sharp observation of the facts. By awakening consciousness within the physical world, we awaken it internally. And Samal Vayor, in his book on sexology stated 
Only those who have achieved awakening in the superior world possess conscious clairvoyance or imagination. Conscious imagination or clairvoyance is really developed when you are learning to enter the dream state willingly, consciously. You see what's actually there. You don't have to theorize about it. You just know it because you're living it like you're here physically. But the consciousness can be transcended too. There are states of perception which are truly divine. And in this, we don't dream at all. The consciousness fluctuates in its work depending on the consistency and intensity of the student, whether to really stay awake, to work moment by moment to be attentive, oftentimes falling into sleep, losing attention, losing the thread of something, even in a lecture or dialogue perhaps, being asleep. Consciousness fluctuates, but superconsciousness is of divinity. It is the perception of a God. It is the perception of a being like Jesus, Moses, Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad. Masters who could see every dimension of existence here and now, without confusion. We talked about in our previous lecture how all the different spheres of the tree of life are here and now. They interrelate with our physical life. And in fact, our dreams relate to how we live physically. Therefore, everything is interconnected. A being like Jesus coming into a room can see the thoughts of a person, the emotions, the egos, how much karma they have, know what their past lives were, who their being is, their inner divinity, is omniscient. No fault there. No imperfection. It is the perception of reality, its causes, and relations within multiple dimensions. In the beginning, we can get a taste of that. Anybody can achieve it if they learn meditation. Where you have an experience out of the body, you leave the body willingly, and you experience the tree of life. You communicate directly with your inner being, your inner God. And then they teach, and then he or she teaches you what you need to know. Or if you're really blessed, you go higher up this tree and even unite with your being in which there is no self. There is only the soul united with that ecstasy, with that omniscience, with that joy. But usually that's temporary. It's not permanent. Some people have that experience. They come back to the physical world and then they say, I am a god. And it's wrong. That's a temporary vacation. It's not a permanent residency. In the meantime, we're working on our internship. And that's a process of, in relation to the path of initiation, fully developing and perfecting ourselves. So superconsciousness and conscious imagination have to do with visions, seeing reality. But why we dream depends on the states of our ego, subconsciousness, unconsciousness, infraconsciousness. In synthesis, in order to experience the higher worlds, we have to understand why we dream. We dream because of fantasy, the perceptions of our desires. Salman Vyar states in the revolution of the dialectic, 
When the doors of fantasy are closed, the organ of intuition awakens. Intuition is the capacity to know without, without having to think. No ifs, ands, or buts is direct knowledge. Intuition is knowing in the heart something is real, especially when those visions and dreams coincide with physical facts. Therefore, you develop a lot of intuition, a lot of factual accuracy in interpret interpreting dreams and experiences. We always conclude with a series of exercises. Every day, develop your self-observation from moment to moment. At the end of each day, adopt a meditation attitude. And as if watching a movie, review everything you observed, both inside of you and outside of you. Do not change the facts of what happened. Simply remember the facts of everything you can. This is the type of meditation in which you imagine all the scenes of your day, and even before when you were dreaming, the morning of or at night. You visualize what happened, just recall them in the same way that you recall any fact of what happened in your day. Don't change the facts. The mind will attempt to skew things, to interpret. All you need to do is imagine it with as much clarity as you can, you can start retrospectively from the moment you sat down to meditate to the moment you woke up in the morning, or you can do it from the beginning to the end of your day. Follow your intuition. Either way works. The mind will fantasize and try to argue about this is what happened. Don't think about it. Don't stew in emotion. Just observe it. Imagine it. Lastly, write the facts of your day in your spiritual diary the link which we provided in the PDF. At this time, we're going to open up the floor to questions. So everybody online, you're going to need to write a question in the chat. Does finishing a fantasy conclude the karma of the dream? The question is, does finishing a fantasy conclude the karma of a dream? No. The first step is to stop dreaming. That has to do with awakening your consciousness here and now. When you recognize that you're dreaming, that's a beautiful step. It's the first. When you see that your mind has been wandering, is distracted, is preoccupied, and even in the dream state, you find that you're dreaming, you realize that you're awake, doesn't eliminate the karma. The defect that produced the dream in itself still exists. Only when you've understood and comprehended the ego in its depth by meditating on it, and eliminating it through the prayer of your divine mother. Then the karma is absolved. But even then, some egos are paid with pain in their disintegration. Some defects can only be eliminated once the karma associated with that fault is removed. Once that's paid through a certain situation in life, and even though we've comprehended the ego, finally the divine mother says, okay, we're going to eliminate this. And then the ego can be destroyed. 
But simply knowing that you're dreaming and ending a fantasy in the moment doesn't mean that the projectionist is not there anymore. It just means that you've turned off the light for it. For it. But comprehending the ego is another thing. Is intuition related to being awake in your dreams? Yeah. It's related in the sense that when you have an astral projection, you could immediately know what you need to do without having read anything or thought anything. Intuition is simply the ability to know. It's a faculty of the heart. Conscience. You know what's right from wrong in a situation. Intuition can play out on our dreams and relates to our dreams when we're awake in that state and we know in the moment what we need to do. Or perhaps we receive a vision, a spiritual experience, and then we immediately know the meaning without having to think about it. Intuition is simply the ability to know the truth. It's not an intellectual process. Therefore, it's very intimately related with dreams because dream experiences have already discarded one element in a sense of our intellectual terrestrial personality. Sure. Um, so like, I feel like, I don't know really, but like probably like a year ago, I think I actually projected in my dreams. And then like something happened and I just got scared and I woke up and for like few seconds, I just could not move my body. Like in reality, like what is that? Sure. So the question was about the student's experience of returning from an astral experience and returning to the body, being unable to move. It's known as sleep paralysis. Sometimes when you're traveling in the astral world and you come back, it's like trying to start your car and the engine won't turn. Even though you're in your car, you want to get your back in your body again. You want to start moving. But the transition hasn't fully come about 100%. It's a phenomenon that happens to many people. Nothing to be worried about. Um, would this be like a positive or a negative experience? Like, I don't know. It's, it could be neutral in the sense that it's just something that happens once in a while. Sometimes we transition from the internal world to our physical world slowly. We're aware that we're back in our body, but you can't move. Some people have had experiences that they would call negative in that during sleep paralysis, they've seen images of entities trying to harass the person. I did see something, but I thought it was my spiritual way. I, I wasn't scared of it or anything. Sure. And that's a good thing. You know, it's nothing to be afraid about in terms of the process. So the student was mentioning that uh, she wasn't afraid about what happened in terms of seeing an entity or person. And sometimes that happens with sleep paralysis. Nothing to be concerned about. I mean, even so, in our practices and our studies, we have different techniques that help protect us against negative influences. There's a future lecture in this course. We'll be giving information about that. question. Are dreams or sleep paralysis used as a way to attack people? Is sleep paralysis a demon possession? Primarily my experience has been such experiences are the mind of the student. 
most attacks that people experience are often from their own ego. Because if you start to enter this path and start changing, the mind doesn't like it. Fights back. Like in the myth of Perseus and the Medusa fighting the monster. The monster knows that its life is threatened. Therefore, we have to protect ourselves against our own mind. That is the majority of cases for people. But yes, there are entities known as black magicians or demons whom we learn to conjure or protect ourselves from. If you want to learn how to defend yourself, study our course on our website. It's called Spiritual Self-Defense. There's about a few lectures on there already about that topic. I've met the same negative entity in sleep paralysis as a child many, many times. Thing is, don't worry about it. It's good that you have the data, but in order to do a full assessment of what that entity is, it's important to meditate. Ask internally what is going on here, and your inner being can give you a dream or experience about how to interpret the situation. Sure. The question is, is there a relationship between the astral or dream world and paranormal activities? Yes. Oftentimes, the symbolic narratives of different stories and myths or in great works of literature have demonstrated the type of magical works one can perform within the dream world. You know, sometimes people talk about seeing auras or ghosts and other entities you know, that's because those people tend to be more sensitive. They have the imagination, more active. Primarily, they might have developed that sense in a previous life. But having returned, they've forgotten about it. So some people can have perceptions not only of the physical world, but even the internal worlds. Some people see those types of phenomena. Yeah, there's a lot of stories and myths and literature talking about heroes doing great feats of work and magic. That's a symbol of the interior work that we perform. So those paranormal activities do relate to that. I can, on occasions, astral project or become aware that I am in a dream. However, at this stage, I don't seem able to investigate the superior worlds. That is, I try and invoke a master, but nothing happens. Is this blockage due to the ego? The master appears when the student is prepared. So the question is about invoking a divine being like an angel or a master. That's something that happens as a result of the will of divinity and when we are prepared. I know for some people it can get frustrating where in the initial stages of astral projection they start to awaken in that state and are asking a certain uh, master that they want to get help from and thinking and feeling that they're not being helped. I advise in your situation to meditate on any other dreams that you have. So you may be asking internally for a master to come to you But the truth is that if you look at the context of any other experiences that you have, you have to reflect on how they relate to your physical life, but also understand that 
we get help from the initiates without even seeing it. Personally, I've gotten help from certain masters that rather than giving me what I wanted in my petitions, they gave me what I needed, often without me even seeing them internally. But their presence is very real. Experiences where you're face-to-face with a master of the White Lodge, something that can happen when it's the right time, when they have decided that it's going to benefit you spiritually and not our desires. I was thinking that as a dream is a mental process with practice, if the dream is remembered and recorded, it should be possible to later consciously re-enter the dream and expand upon it. Yeah, the dream experience is not mental. It's not intellectual. This is why people from other countries or people who, uh, who are not necessarily literate, like in our Western culture, often have greater access to the astral dimension than their Western counterparts, primarily because astral projection is an emotional quality. Many people who develop the intellect often do it at the expense of the heart. Many of us in the West have a head the size of a library, but a heart that's very deficient. If you want to learn astral projection and to remember your dreams, it doesn't, re- develop, it doesn't require stuffing the head with too much information. Instead, it has to do with being practical. So when you have those experiences, it's a result of saving energies in the heart and developing the heart. So that when you wake up, it becomes easier to remember. We'll have a lecture in the future in this course all about remembering dreams and visions. We'll talk about that eventually. Two questions here. Do we have to have imagination fully developed in order to comprehend an ego and most importantly eliminate it? No. Whatever level you're at, the 3% usually in most beginners, that's something that can strengthen where it's at. You have to remember that in the myth of David and Goliath, David was a child in the Hebrew Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. That's a symbol of the essence who with a stone and a sling and faith in God killed a monster. So you don't have to be like Heracles in order to really go to battle yourself, but you can you start where you're at. And little by little, we develop and mature spiritually. Also, what does it mean to have the recurring ele- element of water in one's dreams every night? Recurring dreams or visions, something we'll talk about in the future too, signifies that there's a deep message you need to understand about your spiritual work. When visions repeat again and again, it's because... It relates to what's known as the initiator element of dreams. A recurring dream has to do with a vision that happens again and again. And whenever that dream happens, you automatically know you're dreaming. So the practical import of that is first, it's a symbol that's going to help you wake up. But symbolically speaking, waters in a dream relate to our energy, primarily of a sexual nature. The state of the waters determines the state of our energies in our body, in our psychology as well. If you want to know more about the symbology of water, study the perfect matrimony. 
which has to do with the nature of working with our sexual creative energy because the waters relate to that principle or force. And sometimes when we see an, a certain element like water, fire, earth, or air recurring again and again in the same time period in our dreams, it could mean we're facing an emotional ordeal related with that element. So an ordeal of water might mean that you're struggling to adapt to radically changing social circumstances in your life right now. And it could show up in your dreams as the ordeal of water repeating. It's another question. You say that hypnosis is bad because it puts us to sleep, but can self-hypnosis be used as a way to connect with the innermost or subconscious? Is the innermost the same as the subconscious? We are self-hypnotized all the time. Whenever we identify with the ego, we are in a state of sleep. That cannot take us to divinity, being distracted or in fantasy. But if I understand a little bit of the nuance of your question, I believe you're referring to the fact that by entering a state of sleep, physically, drowsiness combined with meditation, that opens the doorway to the experience of our inner being. But in that sense, we don't use the term hypnosis, putting ourselves to sleep, because we want to activate the consciousness. Put the body to sleep, still the emotions, calm the mind, that activate the consciousness. When you put those three factors to rest and your consciousness is active, then you can investigate the superior dimensions. The being is not the subconscious. I know Jung used the term the unconscious to refer to the collective mind of humanity that can access all the spiritual and divine symbols and archetypes of religion. We're a little bit more specific in that unconsciousness is an ego. It's a state of sleep. But the being is something else, is beyond, is superconscious. Not limited to even the mind or the consciousness itself. It's something beyond. And that's to be accessed by developing the consciousness. If I read a bunch of mythology, will that be helpful to interpret dreams? It'll be useful if you meditate on it too. You may have experiences that relate to things you read. And that can give you a lot of faith. When you realize that your experiences are not just something limited to a book or yourself, but it's something universal because every mythology and religion and teaching coincide with the experience. And that is what is factual, repeatable, scientific, conclusive. I've practiced SOL, subject object location, and have had the experience of waking up in a dream, but then was quickly suspended and floating in complete darkness. I've had the same experience leaving my body in my room only to be sucked up and suspended in complete darkness. Is this due to a lack of energy or karma related? It's probably a symbol. Every time you wake up, you start to have consciousness of your reality and then you're in darkness again or you're levitating in the sense like you're up in the air with things. Going back to the other instructor's comment about recurring dreams, being suspended in the air can relate to ordeals of air, relating to the need to adapt and be mobile. 
to be secure and courageous in the face of adversities. Being in darkness is the symbol of the darkness of our own mind. So it's a blessing that you've been receiving these experiences because they're showing you something about yourself. Oftentimes, we also are unconscious because we lack energy. So look in your life and your daily experiences to what behaviors in you are wasting energy of an emotional type and of a mental type as well, even physically and sexually, especially. We'll talk about how to save energy and use it for our spiritual development in the next lecture on how do we dream. Any other final questions or comments? One minute. I feel like I'm out of the loop without lucid dreaming. What do I do? Question is, what do you mean by out of the loop? Not conscious. Awaken in your daily life. If you're not having any dreams, you're not perceiving anything internally, look at the way that you act in life. What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? What are your impulses? What are your behaviors in your daily waking and experiences? If you observe the sources of your distractions in yourself through self-observation by being mindful throughout the day, and also of your environment, that practice will help you to awaken within the dream state. So the fact that you're not seeing anything when you go to bed at night refers to the state of your consciousness in your waking life. So learn to observe yourself. Study the book, Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology. It'll teach you all about how to self-observe and to understand the ego. That's how you develop light. Any other question? Sure. Um, so like is it fine to use like lucid dreaming subliminals and stuff or is it not good? Sure, it's a good question. So we talked in our first lecture, the question was about, is it okay to use subliminal uh, methods to lucid dream? We spoke in the first lecture called Fact and Fiction about uh, biornal beats and mechanical means to awaken consciousness within dreams. We don't recommend them primarily because Synthetic sounds, or even drugs especially, are mechanical influences. They activate the ego rather than the essence because they're conditioning factors that impose themselves within our psyche. A drug will awaken consciousness but trapped in the desires and will have a negative experiences within the astral world. Not positive. It's actually seeing within the hell realm, so to speak. Subconsciousness, unconsciousness, infraconsciousness. So we have other methods that we use that are natural because the consciousness is the natural capacity to perceive. So by learning to develop your own intrinsic nature, you don't have to rely on anything external. Is the moment when you fall asleep significant? I often wake up right after falling asleep. I feel startled, my heart is beating fast, and I feel as if I'm fighting to stay alive. I know some people have related feeling terrified of falling asleep. I don't know if there's any medical term or for that type of phenomenon, but the moments in which you're falling asleep are crucial. 
if you enter the dream state with lucidity and intentionality, with control, you can learn to astral project willingly. Because we do it every night, we fall asleep, just not aware of it. Also, too, the more you learn to transition consciously, the more familiar and safe it becomes or, or feels. Because I know some people get terrified of astral projection, the, what's going to happen to me when I go out of my body. I personally had that growing up when I was a teenager. I was dabbling in astral projection at the time. I did have an experience where I came out of my body and feeling fear and terror of, oh my God, this is actually happening. And then my fear took me out. But with practice and time and familiarity, it's something that is now very welcome. So when I start to sense the transition elements of entering the astral dimension, it's nothing to fear anymore. Heart doesn't race, no panic. It's natural. Why be afraid of your natural functions? Like drinking water or breathing or your heart beating. The same thing with astral projection. It's a normal thing. We do it all the time. We're just not aware of it. So there's no danger to becoming aware of what's natural. When I have fairly intense or vivid dreams, I find it harder to focus or be present during the day. Do you have any advice on this? Don't identify with your dreams. It's normal to, in the beginning, feel anticipation or anxiety perhaps the fear of the unknown, especially after having very vivid and intense dreams, it's important not to be attached or fearful of what one experiences. Personally, I've had that issue too where I'd have a very vivid dream or experience, like a vision that was foretelling something negative to happen in the day. I could get very identified as well. It's important not to get identified even with spiritual things. There's a saying amongst the Buddhists, I believe, of getting drunk on nirvana. It's dangerous. Don't identify with any experience, whether it's internal or physical. I know in our beginning studies, we get very enthusiastic about our astral experiences or visions. But the important thing is not to be limited by them in the sense that our mind interprets it a certain way or we feel fear about it, we worry about it, we identify with it. Those are egos. Instead, learn to take the message with gratitude and let the day unfold as it is. Be attentive. It's more like a feeling of spaced out. Okay. Spacing out has to do more with the quality of our consciousness being dispersed. We're not aware of what's going on around us. It's normal in the beginning to fluctuate between states. Sometimes we may have uh, more awakened consciousness that come and go because we're developing. And the more consistent we are, the deeper our practice, and the more effective it is. So if you find that your mind is spacing out at times, don't identify or worry about it. Observe it. When you identify your weaknesses, it's actually a cause for great triumph. Because when you see in yourself why you're dreaming in the day, you can learn to rectify it. Okay, so if there are no more questions or comments, we'll conclude.
Thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.